Buenos dias and welcome. Bienvenidos to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth. Climate change is a here and now health problem, and there are steps we can take right now to make it better. But to do that, we're going to have to take on an industry that uses political consultants and even Instagram influencers to push back. We've got a good one today. It's a double header. My first guest is my colleague, Sabrina Pacha, who works with us here at Healthy Air and Water Colorado. I'm going to speak with her about gas stoves. Yes, you heard that right, gas stoves, and how we can create both healthier homes and address climate change by converting homes to electric. That's the part when we get into the gas industry's Instagram influencers. Then I have a great conversation with BJ LeMay, an epidemiologist who works for the National Resources Defense Council, AKA NRDC, where he works on quantifying and communicating the risks associated with climate change and how we can reduce them. Fun fact, Vijay also speaks both Hindi and Spanish, but we, of course, conducted this interview in English and the English on my end was around the sixth grade level, I'd say. All right, let's get to my conversation with Sabrina. All right, Sabrina, I like my gas stove. I like to cook and I like the, and I like the temperature controls, you know, unlike with a, an electric range, uh, you can turn things up and down real quick. The temperature changes real quick versus on electric. It stays hot longer than you want it to stay hot. I like my gas stove. Convince me why I shouldn't have one. I think, um, it's a two part argument. And then I can get into alternative options that work just as well, if not better than gas stoves. If you care about climate change, it's a reason to consider changing out your gas stove. Uh, We know homes and commercial buildings are one of the most significant uh, sectors that contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. In Colorado, for example, it's one of the top four sectors that contribute to our greenhouse gas emissions. So when we want to aggressively reduce those emissions to curb the impacts of climate change, we really need to rethink about how we are powering our appliances and our homes and where that uh, fuel source is coming from. So by switching over to, for example, an induction stove, you're helping that transition away from fossil fuel powered appliances, your gas stove, which is a fossil fuel powered appliance. That's what gas is. to the electric grid. And as we aggressively transition our electric grid to renewable energy, you're helping us reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's one side of the coin. It's helping reduce greenhouse gas emissions, helping us address climate change. The other reason to consider switching out a gas stove, um, perhaps more relevant to healthier Colorado and healthy air and water Colorado, are the health impacts. And they're really concerning. I mentioned this before, but a gas stove, it's not natural gas, it's a fossil fuel. I think the gas industry has done a really good job, sadly, about branding gas as something that's good for you, that's good for the environment. But uh, just as when you think about oil and gas operations, all of those toxic pollutants are going into your home. And so without proper ventilation, which a lot of homes do not have proper ventilation, you are just living in a toxic soup of carbon monoxide, I don't want to live in a toxic soup. Yeah, you're living in a toxic soup, you and your kids. Nitrogen dioxide, formaldehyde, 
it's all just lingering in your home. And I mean, I think you know that that has a negative impact on your health, but a lot of studies are coming out now as we're fighting against gas industries marketing um, that are finding what exactly these health impacts are. So one study just came out that showed kids who live in homes with gas stoves are 42% more likely to have asthma than kids in homes who do not have gas stoves. Another study that I found particularly compelling is that running a stove in your home for just 45 minutes or an oven, for example, can produce pollution levels that would be considered illegal outside by the EPA. We just don't measure indoor air quality in that way to really warn families about it. So it's for the sake of your health and for the sake of our climate to transition away from gas stoves. And I, you know, I would be remiss not to mention a really, really good alternative to gas stoves, which is induction stoves. And plenty of chefs are using induction stoves. If you watch Top Chef, they frequently feature induction uh, stove tops that are just as precise, if not more. Actually, definitely more than gas stoves. You can get such a precise temperature on those. Yeah, I admit to engaging in a little bit of an artifice. Uh, for the sake of the podcast here, uh, I actually, so we're, we're moving here pretty soon and um, it was time to get a new stove. And so the gentleman at the appliance store uh, gave us a demonstration of an induction stove, including a boil test to show us how fast they could heat up. Um, and so he put a, a bunch of ice in, in a pot and it was amazing first how fast it boiled. And then he turned it off. And he's like, all right, now touch, touch the burner. And, and after some hesitation, like, okay. So I touched the burner and it was room temperature again, not like the old electric stoves. So I was, I was sold. And honestly, I, I came into the, into the store thinking that there's no way that induction is going to be um, as good as gas. And I got so used to gas. And I have such hatred for <laughs> the electric. I, I used to live in an apartment. I remember I had an electric stove and it sucked for cooking. Um, but I was, I, I was surprised uh, and sold. Um, but I, I imagine that the word hasn't quite gotten out yet uh, about induction stoves. And I know the gas industry itself is engaging in a bit of a marketing campaign to uh, preserve the market share of gas stoves. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And I think you're right. I think that consumers don't think of induction stovetops as an alternative. They think of electric stovetops. And it does not help uh, what the gas industry is doing right now. I think they've launched a particularly insidious marketing campaign where they're using social influencers on Instagram to continue this idea that a gas stove... Wait, wait, wait. They're using social influencers on Instagram, like people posing, looking attractive or something, cooking on a gas stove? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it's that... Um, it's that food blogger that has a beautiful gas stove in her beautiful kitchen um, making beautiful food, right? It's, it's that uh, Instagram marketing, organic marketing campaign they're doing. And, and they're completely omitting health impacts or, or talking about requiring proper ventilation with gas stoves. And, and I think it's, um, again, continuing that, uh, that idea that a gas stove is a status that you reach in society. It's, it's something um, desirable and it means you've, you've reached a certain level in your life to have a gas stove in your kitchen. Um, it's just marketing for the digital age. And so from a policy standpoint, how do we go about 
um, phasing out gas stoves and phasing in uh, electric? So there are local, state, and federal policies we can pursue, but I'll particularly talk about local and state since that's what I'm most familiar with. Um, and again, I think we look at this in two parts. One is looking at existing homes and buildings that are already powered by gas and encouraging these building owners and homeowners to make transition to electric powered appliances. And it's a complicated process. I, I don't wanna lie about that. It's, you know, you have to update the wiring in your home. You have to find somebody who will install this electric powered appliances, which is um, surprisingly difficult to do some, find someone who might be able to install a water heat pump in your home. So we need to work with regulatory agencies in the state. We need to work with retailers who sell these appliances. We need to work with the folks who are installing these appliances to create systems and rebates and incentives for consumers to do that. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin more locally is putting in updated building codes and requiring that new buildings and homes are only wired for electric appliances. Um, we see that's happened in Denver. Denver is going to require that all new buildings and homes are electric by 2027. And I think that's the easiest way to get there and, and also leave some, um, some room for folks who might not be able to retrofit homes right away. So I mentioned that we're moving. So we're actually building uh, a, a new house. And I can tell you that um, when we went to, for example, uh, tell the builder um, and other people that we wanted to do, um, we didn't want to go with gas heating, but uh, uh, rather do a, a heat pump. Um, it, you know, we got blank stairs and, um, you know, uh, a lot of kind of inconvenient talk about special orders and all the defaults were set up uh, just to have you connect to the gas line and, and have gas in your home. Um, versus having a geothermal system. I mean, a lot of people barely even knew what it was. Um, and so we just, step after step, we kept encountering these kind of barriers to, uh, you know, get the system that we wanted. I mean, there are incentives too that we discovered. You know, I, there's a 26% uh, federal tax credit, for example, on the geothermal system, which I'm looking forward to my taxes next year. Um, but aside from that, I would say the experience of trying to go geothermal in my house wasn't a super simple one. It's not, and I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because it's a compelling reason for us to do something on a state level to start talking about this more. But I think policy is one end of it. It's also, um, you know, we just need to launch education campaigns and, and start working directly with these retailers and installers. Um, but I, I also think through a policy and regulatory lens, we can put in certain incentives at every step of the production line uh, to make this easier and, and more um, accessible for consumers and homeowners. So specifically, right now I can talk about a policy we're working on with the Public Utilities Commission that would work with utilities like Excel or Black Hills to have them work with consumers and retailers to make it easier and quite frankly, cheaper for consumers and retailers to, to sell these products um, and launch education campaigns to consumers uh, as to why they should be potentially making the switch to electric appliances and, and why it might be um, more efficient for them, both in energy usage and in, in price. 
So I know that the gas industry isn't necessarily taking this push lying down. Can you talk a bit about what they're doing to push back? They are starting to to lobby pretty heavily on a state level against any sort of ordinances that might require electric powered appliances, new buildings, retrofitting. Um, So specifically here in Colorado, we're already seeing legislation introduced as a backlash to Denver's announcement that they would like all new homes and buildings to be electric by um, 2027. And what this legislation says is that local counties and municipalities cannot pass ordinances that require all homes and buildings to be electric powered. They want to leave the door open for buildings to still be powered by natural gas. Um, It's concerning. (laughs) I think local control is always important and local municipalities should have the option, but more so it's just another stall tactic in in the inevitable need to address climate change and our reductions. So another hurdle. This is a tactic that we see in other areas of our work uh, that we refer to as preemption. So that, that, you know, that is uh, at the state or in some cases the federal level passing a law that preempts a locality or a state to uh, deviate from a, a certain standard. Tobacco uh, policy is, is, for example, uh, gone down this road in the past until we've worked to undo it. And it seems like a page out of the same old playbook. Uh, so we talked about how some of this stuff is really wonky and not a lot of people know about um, geothermal. Um, I think people probably have no idea um, about the health effects of having a gas stove in, in your home. Um, we ran some focus groups. You were involved in those to kind of figure out um, w- what's the best way to talk about uh, these issues in an accessible and compelling way. What are some of the lessons that's, that you found? Before I talk about lessons, I, I just want to talk about the importance of, of doing this sort of public education awareness campaign. And, and I think it's how we're going to um, to overcome the challenges that are there now to transition or retrofit homes to electric powered appliances. But we need to get homeowners to understand exactly what it means when they have a gas stove in their home. They have to understand what those health impacts are, and they have to understand that that's really a fossil fuel in their home. When we get there, then we can start creating that demand for electric-powered appliances that'll help solve these hurdles. Right now, I don't think that many homeowners even understand how dangerous the natural gas is in their home, and they don't really think about where the energy in their home is coming from. They just turn on the stove and make the meal or turn up the heat so it's a little warmer. we need to start changing the public's perception and we need to get them to start thinking about where their energy comes from. It's the same line of sustainable thinking when we talk about needing to know where our food comes from, for example. So I think um, in light of that and and the importance of launching a campaign like that, uh, this focus group is really helpful for us to know how to communicate with homeowners about this policy. the, the top line takeaways from that follow pretty closely to what I just said, but we have to stop using natural gas as a term or even gas-powered appliances. We have to call it what it is. It's a fossil fuel-powered appliance. Natural gas is a lie. It's not natural. It's not good for you. It's bad for your health. The more we can associate this with fossil fuels, which the public knows to be dangerous and bad for your health, the better, the more convincing it is. Um, 
we need to start talking about the efficiency of electric powered appliances. And that's both efficiency of energy usage and efficiency of cost and also efficiency of cooking and then the quality of cooking. Um, so to, to talk a little bit more about those three things, electric powered appliances are more efficient on your energy bill. They're going to be cheaper, especially if we can pass laws like the one I was talking about, requiring utilities to work with consumers to encourage them to electric powered appliances we can put in rebates, which makes it cheaper. Um, it's more efficient to cook with induction stovetops we've talked about. There's plenty of research out there showing just how well water heat pumps work. Also, the fact that they're both heating and cooling in one system makes it more efficient. If it goes out, it's not two different um, appliances you're working with. It's just one, which homeowners really liked. And then I think the last takeaway is we need to tie this to both climate change and health impacts. Um, folks obviously care about climate change. We know that the popular opinion is that we need to do something about climate change. And so giving folks another way that they can help contribute to the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions is important to them. And of course, the health of their families is important to them. So making sure that they learn what's actually going on in their homes uh, when they're using these fossil fuel powered appliances is, is a really compelling reason for them to transition away. Yeah, I don't know if it's a really a perfect analogy necessarily, but I think about electric cars and if the difference between an electric car and a gas car was just one is better for the environment than the other, then I don't think that electric cars would have the share of the market, the growing share of the market that it has today. You know, they've gotten a lot better over time when it comes to range, but I mean, they're cool. Uh, they they go fast. I mean, they go like the latest Tesla can go zero to sixty in some super small amount of time. Um, and then, hey, by the way, and, well, you save money uh, on, you know, on not having to buy gas, which is a, which is a big deal. And hey, by the way, you're doing, um, you know, uh, something positive uh, to address, address climate change. I would imagine for most consumers, the climate change aspect is probably towards the bottom of the list um, in reality, um, when it comes to the reasons why they bought the car. I think it sounds like it's similar for, you know, um, gas in your home. When you start talking about the health benefits to them and their family, that would probably take precedence over, um, you know, your uh, contribution to addressing climate change. And you talk about like induction stoves being cool and even more precise than gas ones. I think that's a, a great point of sale as well. Yeah, and, and that actually reminds me one particular focus group. Um, you know, we can we can get Republicans on board with this if we just say it as it is that it's going to be cheaper to have an electric powered appliance. So um, I think you, you brought up a good point that the efficiency of, of cost is probably the most important thing to, to homeowners across the board, political ideology aside. Um, so there's a lot of hope on this policy. If we can get uh, folks who maybe don't care about climate change as much on board just because it's cheaper, you know, there's a point to be made there. Sabrina Pacha, thank you and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. This was fun. All right, let's switch over now to my conversation with Vijay LeMay, 
a climate and health scientist in NRDC's Science Center. You know, I think these days people hear stories on the radio or read stories online that feature studies that describe the economic or even the health impact of climate. And they put dollar figures to it and the dollar figures are are really big. And climate change to begin with is such an kind of overwhelming concept. Sure. My question for you as somebody who, you know, produces this kind of data, do you think that people get their mind around these studies? And if not, like how do we get people to to better appreciate uh, the impact here? Yeah, it's a great question. And I share your concern that it's oftentimes hard to make sense of these really overwhelming pieces of information, um, you know, studies that come at us in the news, um, a pretty, pretty steady march of them. Um, I do think that it's helpful to take a step back from any particular study and look at the overall trend of what we're seeing, because it is an unmistakable signal of mounting damages from climate change sort of no matter which metric you choose things are all heading in the wrong direction and you know last year's data um, certainly confirmed that for example if you just think about what our federal government is tracking in terms of the damage inflicted by climate and weather disasters across the country we don't have to look at any particular year because the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, the folks who house the Weather Service, have been monitoring the economic damages of climate and weather disasters since 1980. And their data set shows that no matter which way you cut it, whether it's the number of really expensive climate and weather disasters or the ultimate costs of those disasters, things are really getting out of control. 2020 set a new record in terms of the number of billion dollar disaster events. These are the most costly climate and weather disasters that inflict terrible damage on homes, on businesses, infrastructure crops. uh, crops. Um, That, you know, 22 events last year shattered the previous annual record. um, And we ended up with about $95 billion in costs attributed to those 22 events last year. Um, But as a health scientist, I think it's important that we also remember what's not included in big statistics like that. And unfortunately, um, when it comes to health, the climate conversation has really sidelined those implications. We have not really fully grasped the full ramifications of the climate crisis when it comes to risks to our health. DJ, you're kind of bumming me out, man. I appreciate that the that the data is all the wrong way, and I've uh, I've reached that same conclusion. Um, but just to uh, uh, provide some some hope uh, to anybody listening, um, as well as some motivation to work on on you know a way to reverse this, are there any trends or policy efforts that you see that uh, give you particular hope that we stand a chance to actually turn the tide here? Definitely. And I am hopeful. I'll start with that. You know, when it comes to the health risks of climate change, we know that every action we take today can reap huge benefits in the near term, but also in terms of the the 
you know, longer term societal challenge um, that the climate crisis poses. We have plenty of evidence linking climate change to a worsening in all types of health problems. Um, when it comes to the climate crisis, we're talking about links between elevated temperatures and drought and wildfire risks in Colorado, for example, but also really clear examples of the way in which climate change is expected to worsen the frequency, intensity, and duration of heat waves. Um, and there's a whole host of other climate-sensitive health effects that scientists have been documenting for more than two decades. The flip side of all those risks, though, is that every action we take in the near term to cut climate pollution and prepare communities for the risks that we know are uh, increasing in severity and scope, the be more benefits we can achieve. Um, there's plenty of evidence that shows that preparedness and mitigation are cost-effective policy interventions. And so when it comes to our work, it's really about making the case that climate action isn't, you know, about necessarily just, you know, saving the polar bears or saving future generations from specific harms. It's also about improving daily life for people right now. It's about cutting harmful air pollution. It's about building, um, you know, places where we live, work, and play that are more sustainable, that don't rely on fossil fuels to sort of enable um, the activities of, of daily life. It's really about building a more equitable, healthy future for all of us. Um, and there are many benefits that we can reap in the near term. It's not that we have to wait decades to realize the benefits of climate action. Yeah, I think you make a really important point there because a lot of times I'll encounter people who, um, if they believe the science in the first place, will say, well, it's hopeless, number one. Um, or they'll say, effectively, number two, uh, this is going to occur so far in the future, I'll be dead by the time the planet burns, so who cares? <laughs> Which isn't good news for people who have kids or are planning to. Right. Uh, and then there's even a third category of people. Um, this, I mean, some evangelicals, you know, kind of say, well, it's in God's hands. It's in God's hands. And, you know, when we come to the day when earth ends and uh, Jesus will return and uh, uh, this sounds kind of fantastical, but a lot of you know people actually believe that and kind of welcome it. Um, and so this challenge of making people understand this problem is now, I think, is really key. And I liked how you um, phrased it and put some points there with respect to nobody wants to breathe dirty air right now. Um, nobody wants to be a, a victim of a, of a hurricane or a wildfire right now. Right. Uh, so I think it's important that you know people understand that these aren't random events, but the, the frequency and intensity of them are being elevated by climate change. Yes, and we have plenty of evidence in Colorado specifically about the ways in which uh, climate change poses a real danger to people's health right now. You know, looking back uh, at the historic fire season in 2012. Um, air pollution concentrations for a particularly deadly type of air pollution, fine particulate matter of soot. Those levels reached about 5,000 micrograms per cubic meter. Um, and just for some reference, the Clean Air Act limit for that pollution, the daily limit is 35, right? So we're talking about levels of air pollution generated by wildfire smoke that are literally off the charts. And that sends people to the emergency room, to the hospital. It can even kill if you're exposed to air pollution over the long term. 
Um, and so climate change is often discussed as a huge, you know, international or national challenge, and it is. But the effects of climate change are in our own backyards. They are experienced, um, you know, at the local level. And so part of the work of uh, us as scientists is to make it clear that as much as we can talk globally about what might happen on average, the problem is really experienced um, at the community and even household level. And so that's why we all have a role to play in helping to inform a response to this problem that actually can reduce risks in our own backyards. Um, so we're already detecting, you know, these changes, the rapid, you know, runaway uh, rise of greenhouse gas levels is triggering all sorts of changes in our Earth system. And as much as our models can tell us about what the future may hold, there's all sorts of unknowns involved, right? And so the, the you know, real urgency of now is to reduce the problem. We know what is happening. It's not like this is a phenomenon where we don't understand um, what we need to do. It's really about summoning the political will in order to make those changes happen that will benefit so, all of uh, us. So you're a scientific researcher, and as mentioned, uh, climate change is a, a vast and global problem. Um, let's talk about health specifically within this broader context. In the, the most successful way you can, um, could you describe how you approach this topic of trying to measure the impact on health that's being made by climate change? Like, do you have a framework? Do you categorize this in some way that allows you to, you know, um, focus in on this in this problem? Sure. Yeah. And I'll say that, you know, I'm an epidemiologist. And so just like, you know, epidemiologists right now are working to understand the spread of the coronavirus around the country, around the world. There are lots of epidemiologists working to understand the health implications of a changing climate. Um, we generally try to understand this problem by focusing on specific exposure risks. We're talking about the direct health consequences of extreme heat, for example, which is often the first thing that comes to mind when people think about climate change. But we're also thinking about the indirect risks. You know, what happens when it's really, really hot outside in the future? People crank up their air conditioning and that cooling demand uh, is powered by polluting fossil fuels in terms of electricity generation. What are the downstream air pollution impacts from that adaptation measure, for example? So there's all sorts of direct and indirect pathways in which the climate crisis is expected to worsen a whole range of health problems. The challenge for people like me is establishing a baseline, understanding how changing patterns of um, disease are affected by a changing climate. Understanding human health problems is a really complex science. It's the whole field of epidemiology devoted to isolating cause and effect. You know, what are the health problems caused by smoking, for example? And so we can use that sort of same approach, the cause effect. Um, analysis to try to understand what are the effects of changing environmental exposures. Um, and so it's a really you know, complex problem. It involves all sorts of data integration, understanding what's happening up there in our environment, but also understanding what's happening with people's health, monitoring um, you know, large groups of people over time and understanding changes in the disease burden um, through that 
really complex data analysis. But, you know, it's not really about us accumulating all the evidence we need. It's really about using that evidence to inform policy action. And this is another reason that I'm hopeful. We have plenty of evidence in this country that using science and the law and evidence-based public policy, we can extend the lifespan of the average American. We can improve the health status of people around this country. You know, last year, the Clean Air Act turned 50 years old. I'm a former U.S. Environmental Protection Agency scientist myself, and the evidence tells us that the Clean Air Act, this one law, has extended the lifespan of the average American by about two years. Hmm. When we attach the economic savings in terms of reduced health problems from cleaner air, EPA estimates that the benefits of that single law outweigh the implementation costs by a factor of more than 30 to 1. We're talking about more than $2 trillion in health benefits from reduced lung problems, heart problems. You know, the health benefits of clean air are hugely cost beneficial. And so I'm hopeful that we can take a similar approach. Look at the evidence with clear eyes and understand that every action we take to get a handle on the climate problem can reap huge benefits for everyone around this country and also help to reduce really harmful health disparities right now that are linked to um, disparities in environmental exposures. We know that the most polluted areas in this country when it comes to air pollution are marginalized communities, low-income communities, communities of color are exposed to elevated levels, disproportionately elevated levels of air pollution. And so it's really about advancing equity and health for all of us through appropriate climate action. So the public health community has really called out climate change as an urgent public health issue. And in fact, I think the American Public Health Association, to paraphrase, um, you know, declared it the most urgent uh, public health issue um, of our time. But what about the healthcare sector? How seriously do you think the, the, the healthcare sector is considering um, the impact of climate on health? It's a great question. We are seeing the healthcare sector increasingly step up and uh, take a leadership role in helping to explain that the climate problem is really about our health and well-being and also accounting for the significant greenhouse gas emissions that come from delivering medical care in this country. Um, there was a published study from just about two months ago that found that the U.S. has the highest rate amongst all developed countries in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions per capita linked to healthcare delivery. Um, although there's quite a bit of variability from state to state, which shows that you, know, you don't have to compromise on healthcare quality um, when you're aiming to reduce the outsized environmental footprint of delivering care. Um, so we know that the healthcare sector really needs to reduce consumption of, you know, unnecessary consumption of resources, decarbonize its operations, and invest in preventive care. You know, every step we can take to keep people out of the emergency room, keep people out of the hospital, um, is, is cost effective. And ultimately, you know, we need a health system that isn't just about health care, but is about reducing upstream factors that contribute to ill health. You know, we need to address community design. We need to address active transportation. 
We need to focus on diets. We need to focus on reducing disparities in exposure to contamination in the environment. Because once you know, you're know you in the hospital, we are right now shouldering Americans with hugely expensive medical bills. More than half of American adults right now report medical financial hardship, which basically means that people are delaying or completely foregoing necessary medical care simply because they can't afford it. And research that we've done at NRDC demonstrates that the most vulnerable amongst us, Medicare and Medicaid patients, are shouldering a hugely disproportionate burden of the health costs of climate-linked problems. So this is really about, you know, stepping up and recognizing that we need to be smart with our dollars, right? We need to invest appropriately in climate adaptation in order to avoid these harms from occurring in the first place. We have a supremely dysfunctional medical care delivery system in this country that shoulders people with skyrocketing bills and often, you know, bankrupts families. And so the climate crisis and the the medical, um, you know, insurance sort of policy discussions have proceeded on kind of separate tracks. Um, But I really think that they should be unified because the health professionals have a fundamental role to play in helping to um, shape our our response to this problem. You know, doctors and nurses, public health professionals are some of the most trusted members of society for good reason. And we can use that trust to help, um, you know, sort of largen um, the, the tent when it comes to advocates for climate action. We're increasingly seeing the medical professionals step up to the plate and make the case that climate action is ultimately about improving health for all of us. Well said, BJ LeMay. I think that's a good point at which to end. I really appreciate your time and keep up the fight. Thank you, Jake. Thanks again to Sabrina and Vijay, and thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear, please, please subscribe. It helps us a ton in spreading the word about the podcast. I'll see you next time.